0: Hello and welcome to Critical to Your Success. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Rachel Park, and I'm a critical care nurse, academic and researcher from Auckland, New Zealand. This is the podcast where I talk to critical care nurses, allied healthcare team members and academics about what has been critical to their success. This is episode number two, recorded in August 2018, and today I talk with Samantha Bates, Samantha comes from Melbourne, Australia and has a background as a critical care nurse. She is currently the research manager for ICU research at Footscray Hospital and Sunshine Hospital and also for anaesthesia research at the four Western Health Hospital campuses. She is also the current chair of the Intensive Care Research Coordinators Interest Group for Australia and New Zealand. In her spare time, she's a girl guide leader, wrangles teenage daughters and loves to swim to avoid the phone. In this episode, Samantha and I talk about how stepping away from the bedside can allow us to think more broadly, why nurses make great researchers, and how participating in research can change your world. So grab a cuppa, sit back, and enjoy the interview with Samantha Bates. So today I'm talking with Samantha Bates. Samantha comes from Melbourne and we'll talk a little bit about the area that she works in but she uh, works in intensive care and anaesthesia and we're talking today at Coogee Beach in Sydney where we're both attending the ANSCA clinical trial network meetings so provided a great opportunity to catch up almost halfway between Auckland and Melbourne so nice. so thanks Sam for taking the time out today to talk to us and absolute pleasure good to chat (laughs) it's always good to chat and I'm sure we won't have any problems talking
1: no not at all (laughs) two women in a room with no other distractions
0: (laughs) exactly and we've managed to find so far a nice quiet room to do that on so thank you yeah so what made you get into nursing in the first place let's go back in time a couple of years
1: (laughs) you've got to go back a long way in time there's a A really interesting photograph on the wall of my parents' house. It's a photograph of my sister and I. My sister is four years younger than I. Uh, I used to do a lot of dress-ups when I was little. And there is me in a nursing dress-up outfit administering what looks like a um, a canteen of water to my sister who is in army garb. Um, Of course. uh, So (laughs) this is the photograph of me in my nursing outfit, at probably about the age of, I reckon, nine or ten. So my, my brother and sister hijacked my cubby house and it got painted in Army headquarters um, camouflage <laughs> and I was mortified uh, and they used to run around shooting each other up and I used to go and, yeah, patch them Fix up. Fix them, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So started early, I think. Uh, so I think um, I also, um, through my sort of early high school years, uh, found a, a mutual friend whose daughter had um, multiple physical disabilities. Um, she had a very rare condition called Marble Bones Disease disease. Um, affects very very few people um, and her mum really wanted um, Bronwyn was her name to sort of find somebody else that was the same age group but didn't have any disabilities and just form a, just a normal friendship mm. so I used to go around and visit Bronwyn quite a lot but she was um, very short in stature wheelchair bound um, and uh, developing blindness as well so I think I would probably say that my I think friendship with Bronwyn sort of evolved into that sort of caring, nurturing sort of role and perhaps led my interest into looking at nursing as a, as a proper career from, from that.
0: Mm, interesting, eh, how those sort of associations can lead you down the track.
1: Yeah, her mum was a nurse as well, so she used to work mm. a lot of shift work as well too. Uh, and I was paid as a carer for Bronwyn uh, towards the later years of my high school years. I used to ride my bike home from school and meet her school bus when it used to come up. And, right. Yeah, and we used to go on outings and shopping trips and went to the circus and all sorts of stuff.
0: Yeah. And what led you into intensive care? How far into your career did you (laughs) get into that? Well, so
1: when I graduated, I did have, I think it was my second year placement, I had a placement in uh, an intensive care unit at Geelong Hospital, so I'm originally from Geelong in Victoria. Uh, and it was really interesting, there was one particular nurse there that um, had a bit of a chat to us as students on that placement and she'd just recently done a paper, I think, for her Masters uh, and she was describing a scene, and I can't even remember her name, shamefully, but she was describing in her paper um, and referring back to the um, story of Gulliver's Travels mm-hmm. where um, he as a giant is strapped down by all the little Lily Putin, um people and it really struck me um I'll I'll never forget the the imagery I think that was associated with that and uh I found it I I think I was quite intrigued by you know sort of these people completely dependent on machines and things Mm -hmm. around them uh so that was second year nursing and then uh I went through the era of there was, well I didn't have a hex debt, I was hex free in university when I did my nursing and there was a big group of us from high school that all went and did nursing together and um, at that time there was a shortage of nurses um, and not enough graduate nurse placements so it took me about six months to get my first graduate nurse placement. Um, And my very first placement on my graduate year program was in an intensive care unit. And I was freaking out thinking, (laughs) oh my God. Um, And I was supernumerary for eight weeks of that time. And then after that, they transitioned me into looking after HDU patients. And that was um, a little private hospital in Melbourne, which is now a much bigger private hospital. So yeah, so there you go. I started ICU Mm. straight out of the gates. Um, And then I did a sort of like a um, a high-dependency type program uh, a couple of years later. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I'd been working in an ICU by that stage for about 12 months and thought, okay, it's time to
0: go and do my uh, intensive care course. Right. And have you worked outside of the intensive care since then or just sort of stayed in that environment? Yeah, I
1: dabbled in a bit of (laughs) clinical teaching for a while. I think, too, when you become a bit sort of senior in your uh, um, specialty area you sort of get a bit restless and sort of look for something a little bit different to change it up night duty was becoming a bit of a problem for me um i well probably still do suffer but no longer had um, some av nodal reentry tachycardia which i'd had as a child never really bothered me much but the more shift work i was doing the more episodes i was getting of, of av nodal reentry tachycardia a bit of runs of svt Um, and it was becoming much more frequent so Mm -hmm. I was looking for an out and that's the pitfall of ICU nursing it's always that one-to-one nurse patient ratio and you do tend to do more shift work particularly nights than other areas of our profession Mm -hmm. so I thought yeah I'll give clinical trial uh, clinical teaching a bit of a go so yeah I went out with students second and third year nursing students Mm -hmm. as their placement supervisor and Yeah, that was interesting fun. (laughs) I was going to say, how did
0: you find that? What were the challenges in particular?
1: The challenges were mm, trying to fail students that really weren't meeting the grade um would be skipping out of their placement to go and move their car but they'd be gone for hours at a time (laughs) so that was hard Um, but they really wanted knowledge they really had this thirst for knowledge and wanted stuff from you so you know you're supposed to do like a debriefing session with your students and it ended up the debriefing sessions almost became like mini tutorials where I was taking them through things like heart failure and different types of medication. And,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: yeah, so it was challenging sort of meeting their needs. But I really wanted to impart into them... Just the beauty of of nursing and and the different realms that it can take you into, there's so many pathways in nursing that you can do, and just to instill that enthusiasm for
0: them. Mm, I think we're so lucky, aren't we? And I think that's one of the things that people don't necessarily recognise when they step into nursing or consider Mm -hmm. it as a career option just the multiple areas that you can end up in yeah yeah Mm -hmm. so have you traveled with your nursing and
1: no I haven't it's always something that I've kind of regretted thinking and my husband and I have talked about it a bit we've often sort of said oh we would love to have worked overseas
0: but no I never never took that opportunity Mm -hmm. no plenty of opportunity here though yes yeah Yeah, there is so after the clinical teaching what did you then go on to do because you've obviously moved back into the you know hospital environment
1: yeah well the clinical teaching was just sort of for their semester placements Um, so I think I did two or three semesters with students Um, and so in between I was still back um, at bedside nursing in the intensive care unit Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was working at the Austin hospital in Melbourne um, in that intensive care unit And there was a little office right opposite the door to intensive care, which was occupied um, by a research coordinator by the name of Donna Goldsmith, Uh, for those that might be listening to this podcast in the ICU realm of research will know that Donna Goldsmith is now the executive officer of the ANZIC's clinical trials group Um, and Donna pulled me aside one day and said I have a job coming up that I want you to apply for and I went yeah what's it for she goes well it's for this fantastic new study called the SAFE study which is now the the landmark study of saline versus albumin um and she said you know put it put in your application and she goes and it'll get you off night (laughs) judy so i went okay fine done so that started a little pathway into research yeah yeah which is where i've been since a little hiatus in between with kids um yeah
0: and so now you're full-time research? Mm-hmm, that's, I am. Yeah. Yep. And between two areas. So I think you know that's becoming more common these days as well, not necessarily just working as a research coordinator in the intensive care or anaesthesia, but you know often sort of spanning different areas within the hospital. How did that come about? So where I work now...
1: Um So when I came back from maternity leave, uh, I was just still back at the bedside at the Austin and a a research coordinator position came up at Western Health. Uh, Western Health is on the western suburbs of Melbourne um, and their two main hospitals are Footscray Hospital and um, Sunshine Hospital. Uh, and it was to work with Craig French, who was one of the intensive care um, consultants at that time. Mm -hmm. Craig was a registrar when I was doing my (laughs) ICU course at the Austin, way back when. So I knew Craig. I'd also known a couple of other consultants, um, Dr. Forbes McGain, Dr. John Mulder, who are other consultants over that way. They'd all come through as registrars at the Austin. So I went, actually, this is a really good opportunity. I'd learnt so much during research. I wanted to get back into that space and realise that I really had an aptitude for it and uh, an interest in it so um so I moved across to Western Health Western Health is a smaller um health network if you like in Melbourne it's not one of the bigger players so sort of sitting a little bit on the fringes mm-hmm. and their department set up was um, well we are the Department of um, Intensive Care Anesthesia and Pain Medicine um, both um, Craig French and, and Forbes McGain as two of the ICU consultants also dabble in a bit of anesthesia as well so there was a very collegiate um, working group mm-hmm. at, um, uh, at primarily at Footscray Hospital at that time so it's sort of, we had an office near the anaesthetic department as well, so primarily we started doing ICU trials, and um, that's what I came across to do. And where the anaesthetic department wanted to grow with was with a lot more anaesthetic research, and so it sort of made sense for us to sort of step into that space. Mm-hmm. And I think it works well at Western Health um, because of that collegiality um, and that fantastic collaborative sort of working relationship. Um, I don't think it necessarily works at other bigger institutions, but for
0: us it does. I was going to ask, do you think it's more about the people as opposed to a natural sort of marriage of the disciplines itself um, in terms of how it works or maybe how it doesn't work sometimes?
1: <laughs> yeah, probably a bit of that. Um, however, I think your skills as a research coordinator, you can, you can use those skills across any discipline. But I think it helps enormously to have uh, some buy-in or some clinical knowledge in that area. It helps enormously. If mostly for that sort of PR and you get what the staff are doing on the floor, you understand that better. Mm. Um, but really, we could move into any, any realm.
0: Mm. Do you think nurses um, in particular make you know good researchers? And if so, why?
1: yeah they make yeah they do we have a, just attention to detail and that sort of
0: nitpickiness
1: about <laughs> <Yep>. things <laughs> i think most nurses are probably pretty conscientious people as well um uh and you know we we can be quite task orientated in that sense but we're really good at if someone gives us something to do we'll follow it to the letter
2: yeah.
1: mm. um so yeah i think they can I think the difference is that I'd like to see nurses just expanding their lateral thinking a little bit more outside of that sort of audit task orientated realm mm-hmm. and to think a bit more globally about more about what they're doing and okay this is how we do it here but is that necessarily the best way that everybody else is doing it?
0: Have you seen some good examples of nurses doing that in your area?
1: Look admittedly we struggle a little bit um Uh, But yes, there are some really good um, people leading some really interesting projects. Yeah, Mm.
0: And I guess through, so one of Sam's other jobs (laughs) is as the chair of the um, Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society Intensive Care Research Coordinator Interest Group. It's, or a it's a It mouthful. is a mouthful. Uh, it's a very long-winded title. So Sam took over this year as chair of the group. Um, so would you like to tell us a little bit about the research coordinators throughout Australia and New Zealand?
1: It's a really wide and varied bunch actually these days. Um, we cover a whole range of, um, well, different types of people as research coordinators. We're not all necessarily from a nursing background. In fact, one of my members that I work with is from a science background, one of my colleagues. Um, so And some are from physio disciplines as well. So it's, it's quite a varied bunch. But the majority of us are, are from a nursing clinical background. Uh, we're all pretty much self-funded so um, that can be quite challenging um, exceptionally challenging not quite exceptionally challenging because it means that really our our roles are pretty much funded by any sort of research income that are derived from the studies that we do um, and there's been lots of pitfalls with that a lot of the research coordinators work part-time on the floor as um, in their intensive care units as well as doing research roles some are predominantly just in in research roles it's a bit of a mixed bag some work in isolation so they may be the only research coordinator for their intensive care unit others work in huge big teams um, and are much better supported and, and funded so it's uh, it's quite challenging to try and meet the needs of that variability and spread across research
0: coordinators. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, you know, you brought in the fact that a lot are working part-time in these roles and part-time perhaps still on the floor. Mm. What do you think are the benefits of doing that? Yeah, so it probably took me... Uh,
1: I had young children when I first came across to Western Health. I was in primary school years, so I didn't really have the capacity be, to be a full-time researcher but equally didn't have much time to pick up clinical shifts. Mm. And I reckon it took me about a good 18 months, two years to get that innate desire and drive to to you know be stymied a little bit by that desire to be still at the bedside you might be standing next to a um you know a bed where a new admission has just been rolled in and you just can't help but glance across <laughs> and oh do you want a hand over there and what what are you up to yeah <laughs> and and i think there's still that that part of you that still wants to be part of the action um but uh i think I think I'm a better clinician actually now for my knowledge base that I have now. If I went back to bedside stuff, I think, my, yeah, I think I'd be a much better clinician. I can see things a lot more broadly than mm. perhaps what I was doing at the bedside. Um,
0: Do you think there's reasons for that um, in terms of, you know, often as a research coordinator, you're exposed perhaps to a lot of um, different conditions that you might not necessarily deal with on a day-to-day basis through hearing about study proposals in a certain patient population Um, and I guess that's what always sort of gets me is you know where my background is very cardiothoracic focused and so you come to a meeting and all of a sudden you're hearing about the brain or you know (laughs) yeah so do you think research coordinators sort of pick up a lot more general knowledge
1: yeah I, I think so and um yeah, that, that's certainly true, but I think you're also seeing other, you're exposed to other things, whether it's, you know, attending conferences, I think our ability to perhaps um, expand our knowledge base and, and network outside of, of what's happening within those four walls of the intensive care unit is, is perhaps a little bit more um, easy to, to do. Mm-hmm we can have the ability to just look something up more easily without having to worry about silencing the ventilator and suctioning a patient and getting interrupted by the clinical team all at the same time. And sometimes it can be really long shifts at the bedside. It's hard yucca. And you get home at the end of that day and you go, oh, yeah, I did want to look up all that stuff about my patient, but... I'm I'm too tired now you know and you might come back to it a couple of weeks later when you have another patient with a similar condition Mm. I think it's more fragmented learning that way is a little bit more fragmented and harder to build on whereas I think we are able to I don't know soak that up more easily
0: perhaps Mm -hmm. how do you think we can support our bedside colleagues to be able to do that perhaps and be able to see a bigger picture than just the patient in front of them or just their unit through research activities?
1: Yeah, I think it's when when you've got new studies, uh, as a research coordinator, often our job is to try and simplify the study to minimise the impact at the bedside as much as possible and to try and... We recognise that it's hard work at the bedside and we, we don't want to overburden them. So you try to sort of educate nurses... In a simple way but you've got to try and tailor that that it's interesting for them as well and so I really try to keep it engaging for them and give them a lot more of that sort of background information into those particular types of patients and conditions Mm -hmm. and I think that's where you can get that sort of interest and and buy-in from Mm -hmm. them and educate them at the same time
0: yeah Do you think research gets a bad rap? (laughs) In the bed space? It it does a
1: little bit. It's, you know, a lot of people will sort of look at research and think, oh, it's it's kind of like that wart on the end of the finger or the nose that, you know, it's it's not really part of care, it's not really the first priority. But actually, you know, if you if you look around every aspect of care that we do, it's all been built on some sort of foundation of research. Um, and that's what I try to remind everybody all the time, well, actually, this kind of should be part of your job.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It, it should be part of improving a knowledge base and setting you know better benchmarks and better care for our patients. But for some reason, it sort of hasn't been. Maybe it's because there's that gap in knowledge about what we do behind the scenes and how it all evolves, that there's that, that big gap of understanding why we have to have all this regulatory oversight and consent forms and ethical applications. And It's it's very removed from what you actually do at the bedside. Mm. And I think also, you know, look, if I look back at my university days as an undergraduate, oh, the statistics stuff and things that we were introduced to are so dry. It was not engaging at all. Um, and I wish that perhaps more of us as clinician researchers mm. would be into that space, into undergraduates, to really give them a much better understanding of what we do in a more clinical context rather than a statistics lecture. Mm. I think maybe that would help change those perceptions.
0: So perhaps that people could see the end game yeah <laughs> and the benefits of the research that's being undertaken as opposed to you know the tasks that just need to be performed yeah. at this moment in time how
1: how we how we're leading care in the future how how we're changing outcomes for you know you and I, I often say to this at my staff at the bedside, okay, well, you're caring for this one patient right here, right now, but I'm caring for like hundreds of thousands of patients in the future. That's mm. the difference. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a
0: really interesting way of putting it. You know, it is looking at that end game and um, thinking, you know, how might we be improving care? How might patients benefit in the future, not just, you know, yep. the one in front of me? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah. debunking myths. Um, changing sort of the status quo or we've always done things this way yeah but it's not necessarily the right way.
0: Mm. Do you find that on a day-to-day basis too outside of um, perhaps the patient you're looking at for a research study that you're trying to challenge those beliefs along the way as well sort of at the bedside? Uh, Yeah yeah
1: yeah Absolutely.
0: Mm. And in multiple professions, perhaps?
1: Yes, yeah. I mean, we, we mentioned earlier that we also do anaesthetic research. Um, so we've often had to do some in services with nurses up on surgical ward areas. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting. So I, I try to get very enthusiastic about research, particularly when I'm engaging these people, and I'm giving in services to the nurses. Asking them, have any of you ever had to help participate in a research study before? And they're all sitting there shaking their heads at me, going, no, nope, never done anything before. And I'm so saying to them, well, this is fantastic. You are so lucky. This is going to change your world. We're going to give you a whole glimpse and an insight into something different that you're helping change patient practice in a whole different way. Um, and it, I'm really trying to engage them to to embrace it and mm. take it on. And it's not difficult. It's not hard. It can be fun. It can be interactive, um, and to give them something back.
0: Mm, mm. I think that's you know it's great if if you can manage to do that. Yeah. Mm. What about trying to engage patients and research along the way too? How do you find that? Yeah,
1: that can be challenging at times, and it can be easy at other times as well. Um, consent with patients i don't know i've been doing this for a while now you sort of it's it's terrible to say but almost sometimes in that first 30 seconds or a minute of talking to someone you will know whether you're going to get engagement from that person or not it's it's sort of like an intuitive thing now you just you just know but every now and then somebody will surprise you and you just sort of keep chipping away at it and you think, yeah, okay. And knowledge is powerful. And I think giving patients knowledge and giving them more insight makes them feel a little bit empowered. Um, and if you can explain something to them in a way that they understand simply, you can, you can get them. Um, and I always thank my patients, you know, at every step of the way. And part of me sort of thinks, okay, this might be one small study that they've done for us, but what if they have multiple readmissions Mm -hmm. in the future? I want them to be left with a positive experience of, yeah, I helped out, I helped make a difference, Mm -hmm. and it might have helped me, but I certainly know it's going to help a lot of other people. I want them to feel that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think in this age of consumerism and, and... more knowledge. A lot of them now will go and Google stuff, okay. so you know it makes them more interested in actually what's happening with them.
0: Why do you think patients agree to participate in research? Because you know they're incredibly generous with their time with participating in research. Why is that? It's possibly the sell. <laughs> Sometimes you sell
1: it the right way. Um, yeah, look, there's a there's probably quite a few factors in that. Uh, I honestly consenting somebody over the phone is much more difficult than consenting somebody face-to-face in person. And often that consent discussion is not necessarily about what it is that you're giving them information about for that research study. It's about building that relationship with someone. You know, someone's coming in for surgery, you're having that simple conversation with them about, well, who's looking after the dog at home while you're having surgery? Who else is missing you for the next couple of hours? It's actually making them feel... Important, mm-hmm. and that someone's taking the time to sit and chat with them and to listen to them. Mm-hmm. Um, other patients, they, yeah, they just get it really easily. That actually, yeah, I get it. I'm, I'm actually a patient in a tertiary teaching hospital. This is kind of my role. Actually, is to help others, mm-hmm. and that that can be quite easy. Sometimes it can be a lot more challenging, particularly for families that are consenting patients in an intensive care environment. They've never had to even think. About making a decision for somebody else before Mm. um, and you come in approaching them about a research study really confronting they've got the blinkers on and they can only think about their loved one in that bed Mm. that's you know they think are nearly dying Um, and and you come in to the side of that Um, it's very difficult very difficult
0: Again, I guess uh, coming back to terminology and how we approach, particularly families in those sorts of instances, um, do you think it's the word research or study, or why do you think sometimes relatives, you know, when you do approach them and start to talk about a trial, the guinea pig just shut mentality? Down, yeah. yeah, it is. <laughs> it's like, oh, I don't, I don't want my mother to be a guinea pig.
1: Mm. Well. Yeah, I think it's, you know, it harks back to sort of those old myths and stereotypes that we've all had. Mm. Um, I was giving um, an in-service actually to my nursing staff on an education day the other day and I was trying to give them a bit of a history of ethics and, you know, why sort of ethical regulation came in and we were discussing lots of different things about the atrocities in World War II and the Tuskegee syphilis study and all sorts of interesting sad moments in history that have happened. Um And, uh, you know, maybe there's still that that carryover from decades past, Um, but I think we can do much more about um selling that message of being an advocate for change Mm. there's a really great um poster that i often sometimes use in some of my talks which is it's admittedly a picture of michael j fox he's like (laughs) my peanut boy but underneath that um it's got something like yeah be an advocate for change participate Mm. in research and he's been very um heavily invested in a lot of parkinson Mm. research as well but i think it would be fantastic to get more of that celebrity pr behind Mm. what we do to help change that message and subtly just chip away at societal perceptions of it in a different way Mm -hmm.
0: so the good stories and the again the idea behind it, the long term view perhaps rather yep. than just the, the guinea pig. Yeah, helping
1: yeah. humankind. And, yeah. Well yeah you might be a guinea pig but I'm going to make it a really easy kind of thing to do for the guinea pig yeah. you know, it's not, it's not terribly overburdensome. Yeah. and you you always come back to your clinical care is always more important than any clinical trial we will always adapt if something changed, if something happened, that's always really important and that, that can be very reassuring for them as well.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. mm. In terms of the studies nowadays, we do a lot of follow-up too, often out to months or sometimes years down the track. Is that a benefit to being in the research, do you think, for people? Yeah,
1: you don't often... You, you can't sort of coerce people when you're consenting them to say, well, actually... Research actually will shows mm-hmm. that if you participate in a research study, your clinical care will actually be slightly better. You can't do that. It can be somewhat coercive. Um, but it's true in... I think particularly in that anaesthetic space as well, you, you're seeing these patients in a pre-operative setting before surgery. You can sometimes be seeing them in the operating theatre as they're just about to go under the anesthetic and and then you you might be even there beside the bed in the recovery room or certainly seeing them, you know, day one, day two, day three post surgery. You become that friendly face and familiar face that that follows them through. Mm. And equally with intensive care patients too, you sort of you know, I have families now that will stop and wave to me in the waiting room because you've had a lengthy discussion with mm. them and, and you see them at that bedside every single day and you become that friend almost mm. to them. Um, so, yeah, they get an extra pair of eyes. I've called met calls on patients that I've gone to visit up on the ward that I went, there's something not right here. I've I've picked up on things. I've run surgeons. I've looked up blood results and highlighted that back to clinical teams. Um they do actually get that little bit extra.
0: Yeah, yeah. And what about, so yesterday you gave a great talk um, about study (laughs) follow-up. What sorts of issues might get picked up? You know I guess a lot of people don't understand what we do when we call participants you know at three months or six months. Yep. What sorts of things happen in those com- conversations and what sorts of issues might be picked up?
1: <laughs> you can get conversations that will range from the quick answer of the questions that you need to ask and then clunk down goes the phone to a conversation that nearly an hour later you're on a phone still with somebody. They can vary so much and I'm always very, humbled by how Mm -hmm. much people open up their lives to you they do in some of these conversations you're actually just asking them a quality of life questionnaire but you there's that there's something so much more that they want to talk to you about and sometimes sadly you end up they're answering a question about anxiety or depression um and they're telling you how bad their life is Mm -hmm. and you may sometimes be that first person that has sort of engaged in that with them uh, and it can lead you down some really sad pathways and mm. you end up almost sort of counselling this patient and, and f- wanting to give them another resource to help them. Mm. Um, you know, have you have you sought somebody else to help you? Who, who else is with you at home? And, you know, what what's your life like? You know, um, it can be quite deep and meaningful, actually. Yeah. And it's hard to sort of keep your sort of scientific questions with what you need to get answered um, without sort of completely dismissing the bigger elephant in the room, that is, this patient needs something else. Mm. Um, And there's that altruistic sort of nature in us that you sort of want to help them.
0: Yeah. And how do you follow up on those sorts of patients? Yeah,
1: I I will ring patients sometimes. I'll just follow them up, Mm. just give them another ring back, like, oh, actually, I'm really keen. I know that their follow-up's finished, but maybe I'll just touch base with them. Mm sometimes it's great patients tell you yeah well actually I'm going to be away for the next three months I'm going overseas so you won't be able to contact me between these dates." and I'm like oh, okay so and I will jot down little notes mm. so that when I do ring them for the 12-month follow-up I'm like,
0: well how was the trip how was your holiday yeah, yeah. <laughs> tell me about it <laughs> yeah
1: and they're so excited to tell you everything that went wrong on the holiday and, yeah. and everything that was fantastic about it as well but it just it's just got that little bit of extra rapport with that patient and yeah, making their life a little bit meaningful. Mm-hmm.
0: How do you, you know, obviously some of the phone conversations or even the bedside conversations are often quite difficult mm-hmm. for research coordinators. So what do you do to look after yourself after a, a hard call or, you know, for one of your colleagues?
1: Yeah, that's, that's actually an interesting topic. Um, we've recently had um, some very interesting scenarios with some of our patients in the intensive care unit where um, some uh, things haven't quite gone the right way in care and management um, and and abuse and things back towards nursing staff, so we've actually been rolling out um, aggression management training and things in our intensive care unit to help manage that. And we've looked at that from our research coordinator perspectives, also thinking about, well, what are the positions sometimes that we place ourselves into Mm. that might actually be putting us in a position of harm? Particularly if you're talking to a family, you're taking them away from the intensive care environment. You're not necessarily often checking in with the associate nurse unit manager or whoever's on in charge of the shift to say, I'm actually out in the waiting room in a private room with a family talking to them about consent for a study. Nobody else actually probably knows you're out there. Mm. And if that discussion can become aggressive or um, can escalate, actually we're we're in a position that we're completely isolated Mm. and on our own. So we've actually been talking a lot about that with our group and thinking actually we would like to do some sort of training in how to sort of manage that ourselves and simple things like perhaps placing ourselves... In the chair nearest the door so that if we need to come out we can letting another colleague know if I have the luxury of other research coordinators on shift with me that um actually I'm just going to be here That's so what's happening. Yeah. yeah so if you get a call or something from me but also to think about what escalation things I need to do like do I need to ring the principal investigator to come in and talk to this family because I can see that there's some anxiety going on here that Perhaps a different face, we'll just need to calm that down a little Mm -hmm. bit. Um, So, yeah, there's that aspect on the job. and also to not be affronted if people say no. That's okay. It's perfectly fine. But sometimes I think we sort of wear it as a little bit of a badge of honour saying, oh, I didn't get consent from that family. I feel disappointed. Um, but, you know, and it's okay to still put a smile on your face and you'll see that family or that patient the next day in the ICU and you still take time out to just walk past and hello, how are things today? How's he, how's your loved one today? And still have that professional air about you to keep going about your job um, but yeah some days are tough you come home and it can be an exceptionally busy day and it, it may not necessarily be patients or families that you've had issues to deal with it could be nursing staff or medical staff that have had an issue with what it is that you know they've been asked to do for a study and um, that can be quite confronting as well um, yeah there's probably a few debriefing conversations <laughs> that sometimes happen at home um but i have a a very supportive husband who gets squeamish watching um i don't know animal rescue or something on tv <laughs> so you, you can't often get into a lot of the blood and guts and gore no, stuff um no. and sometimes he's just there to listen and then we'll just tune out and yeah, yeah okay all right you're vented that's good <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you think that aspect of your job as a research coordinator is perhaps not recognised by other colleagues in terms of those difficult conversations and the communication sort of aspects of the job?
1: Yes, I think so. Um, And maybe that's our own fault in a sense too, because uh, we just tend to put our head down and get on with the job. And... um, you know although I will come to you know any of my consultants if I've got a problem I've got a problem so in other words this is where I need your backup Mm. uh, and I'm coming to you because this is an issue I can't solve or I can't resolve within my team so I I need you Mm. um and that's great that they will they they recognize that and they'll support you and that's that's great Mm. but uh Yeah, it can be really difficult. People often don't see a lot of the job role that we do. Um, I also have the unfortunate problem that our research office, where a lot of the admin stuff happens, is actually miles away from the intensive care unit and the anaesthetic department. So they see you coming into the anaesthetic department or the ICU very sporadically. Mm. Um, And you can sometimes be seen as not you know you don't get your hands dirty you're not part of the team Um, so we try to spread our love around we'll have our lunch breaks in different lunch rooms to just you know just touch base with everyone and I'll try and chat with my bedside staff and and engage with them Um, yeah so we are part of the team we're friendly people and sometimes you get questions and that's great you've got a hook you can talk to people and they're generally actually interested in what we do and sometimes just little insights and glimpses into difficult situations or challenges that you have can be quite insightful for them. And they they have that different level of understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be great to get nurses away from the bedside to come and follow us for the day. Um, or a week, yeah. same with medical staff. Um, you know, come and spend your admin time in the office, come and listen to the phone calls that we're doing. Um, you know, yeah, <laughs> see what we do
0: exactly. Sort of um, demystify it a little bit in, yep. in a gory way. Not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you, when you get feedback from phone calls, do you take that back to the floor in terms of, you know, we've talked with yep. Mrs. So and so that was here for six weeks and this is how they're doing? Yeah. Yeah. And how's that received from staff in the in the bed space yeah look um, I have I've,
1: I've brought up certain patients in now uh, we have a weekly mortality and morbidity audit um, uh, sometimes it's it's great to sort of pepper those into conversations mm. oh by the way I've followed up this patient that might have been transferred out on ECMO the other week and um, they're now at you know a, a bigger institution mm. and this is how they've gone on um, Sometimes I actually, for data collection purposes, have had to go over to other hospitals to follow up paperwork and things with patients. And it's nice to come back and touch base with the consultant or somebody that might have looked after that patient. Oh, just letting you know, this is how your patient went. Um, but I've been, actually been doing some um, interesting work with um, with Kimberly Haynes. Um, she's one of our senior physio clinician researchers um, at Western Health um, in... Uh, post-intensive care survivors um, and that's been a really eye-opening journey Mm -hmm. and trying to set up uh, collaborative support for intensive care patients or or families and trying to get um, uh, sort of a peer-based model of support a bit sort of like um I don't know, like your AA meetings or something like that, where they're sort of all helping each other. And there's different forms of that and the Thrive Collaborative as well um, with um, Jack Washner uh, in the US um, and a brilliant team of, of people doing lots of interesting stuff in this space. And it's really, we had um, a couple of days we were chatting to ex-patients um, and their families about things that they found um, confronting or that they wanted changed about their ICU journey. And we, we had some of the nursing staff coming in and some of our medical staff to, to talk about their experiences and what we think patients' needs are for transitioning to ward care. And it's, I think what struck me is how little our particularly intensive care think of the long-term stuff. Um, it's great when you see patients that come back to ICU... But they they come and visit, and invariably always, unfortunately, the nursing staff that looked after them the majority of the time are not on shift that day, you know, but everyone's really happy to see them. But there's a big gap that's in between, Um, and I think it was really, um, yeah, really eye-opening to see some of the topics of discussion that these patients were sort of teasing out and um, giving us a little window into, you know, their journey and, yeah, really... Quite interesting.
0: Yeah, I like the idea of the Patients Anonymous <laughs> group. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But how valuable that can be just for staff to see, you know, what happens once a patient l- goes through those doors. Yeah. And we all celebrate that moment that they have finally got out. Um, yeah. But really often we have little idea of what goes on how long they spend an award, yeah. how long it is till they go home.
1: But the impact on their lives, mm. you know, they were a sole business owner, self-employed you know employed with their own business that their wife has suddenly had to turn around and manage the business and, and work every day while he's in a lengthy intensive care admission to stop them from going bankrupt. I mean, this is sort of the reality stuff. And, mm. you know, um, even the impact of... Uh, of families now becoming sort of care support people for these patients that might have been previously extremely independent and that changes family dynamics family relationships in such a tremendous way and I, I think that we we sort of understand it but when you talk to these patients about that journey and that impact it's um, wow mm. yeah really just puts a lot of things into a different perspective
0: yeah very far reaching yeah you know? Do you think there's any sort of one thing we could do in the bed space to try and understand who our patients are when we're looking after them? Often in the intensive care environment, we might receive them as an unconscious patient that we are just lying in front of us. We have no real idea who they are, what matters to them. Yeah. What's one thing we could do to try and understand them a little bit better, do you think?
1: yeah it's an interesting question because i think we we always try to do that very well um and i'm always really heartened to see you know patients or their families they've brought in memorabilia and things like that from home it gives you that little bit more of a perspective on who that patient was and or is and and what their life is mm-hmm. around suddenly this very unwell person in a, in a hospital bed um it's really good to keep talking to family um to keep talking to patients I I, I don't know I'd like to see us do that more maybe yeah. we tend to sort of almost um pigeonhole them a little bit we tend to talk about their condition but we don't tend to necessarily talk about how that condition is going to impact the rest mm-hmm. of their their life and and who they are mm-hmm. um yeah but I don't know I think Generally as a whole, we do it pretty well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: But maybe just make a little bit more of an effort to try and understand their place and their community, their lives, um, as it was before they came into hospital.
1: Yeah. But even when you walk into an intensive care unit, like everyone's busy, but uh, you know it's quite rare, those moments that you actually see a nurse just pull up a chair and sit next to the patient, just have a chat. Mm. It has and does happen, mm. but... You know, and I find that really refreshing, really engaging. Or when the ward rounds stop, you know, and they'll actually just sit and chat rather than clicking away on the on the keyboard, <laughs> um, and I can move on to the next patient. It's so refreshing to actually, yeah, this is this is this patient, this person. I'm, I'm taking time out from everything else that's busy around us. I'm, I'm here to talk to you. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic.
0: And I guess big differences in your roles between how. Um patients are engaged within the intensive care and within an anaesthetic or surgical sort of setting too. Yeah. Um, do you see big differences there in terms of how clinicians engage with patients And one oh, area? A lot, of,
1: a lot of similarities in many ways you know you might be doing a patient follow-up on the ward and the you know the, the clinical team will come in and all stand around in a big group at the end of the bed and whoosh they're out the door again and you know I'm sort of sitting there next to the patient mid sort of questionnaire conversation and we're just sort of looking at each other and I went well I think that meant that you're going okay <laughs> you're sort of filling in the gaps yeah. um I said did you have any questions and I try to empower my patients as well to say look if you if you've got a question about anything have a bit of paper next to your bed ask questions that's this is the opportunity yeah. to do it because often I think particularly perhaps more of our elderly population we're so used to yes doctor no doctor um yes nurse no nurse mm. that they just do what they're being told but you know um I'm really trying to encourage them to know if you think of anything this is this is the time to ask mm. you know and ask lots of questions be engaged and yeah, sometimes there are other patients that just want to just chill out. Yeah. I, I don't want to know too much. That's fine. I'm doing okay. Yep, great, fine. <laughs> Everyone's different.
0: I think it's often very easy for people to fall into that role, isn't it? And just yeah. be told what to do, how to feel, and um, you know, and not sort of question it.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: So you spoke before about you know some days are really tough days, mm-hmm. um, and going home with that burden. Do you do anything on your way home to kind of, you know, shed the load before you walk in the door, so it's not quite as bad for your poor husband? <laughs> <laughs> or do you just sort of take it home with you and then dump it? Or uh,
1: I think there's a lot of roller coasters that we ride in um, in research. You can have extremely busy periods, and you can have some quieter times. Uh, sometimes you've just got to pull yourself back a little bit to go, okay, this is just a really busy period at the moment. There's just a lot going on. It's okay, we'll get through this. And it's a little bit of self-mentoring as well. Um, uh, I have the benefit of other colleagues. Um, I I do work with a team of research coordinators, and that um, is really invaluable. I found it quite can be quite lonely when and I have worked as a sole research coordinator. It can be extremely isolating. Mm-hmm. But to have colleagues that I can buffer things off is fantastic. Um, sometimes, though, I have called other research coordinators um, and still do, um, even if I have colleagues. And that's, yeah, you can just ring somebody else who gets what you do. They might be having the same frustrations with a study. Um, and it's really great to just network with somebody else mm-hmm. and just get some other feedback from them. Uh, but yeah look sometimes I get the phone call in the car on the drive home Um, particularly for intensive care research I'm a big advocate for we're there to support clinical staff so we do have a 24 hour mobile phone that's available anytime you can call us anytime and I'd really I really encourage that they rarely do but when they do it's like yeah I'm here to help what, what's what's the problem? What you Happy that you've called me. this is fantastic and they're apologizing it's three o'clock in the morning. No it's okay I'm, that's I'm so thrilled you've called me yeah. but that can be a little bit wearying at the time. so we try to sort of balance that on-call phone around amongst the team just sort of share that load a little bit as well. Mm. Um, but yeah otherwise you, I don't know, you crank up the radio a bit loud on the way home you just a um, little bit of diversion therapy think of something else. I swim. Uh, I that's my yoga I, I swim laps so um, I used to be a competitor when I was younger so I find getting in the pool great just yeah, vent all your frustrations out in the pool you
0: can't hear the phone in the pool <laughs> no you can't
1: absolutely not so oh, yeah you get out of the pool sometimes oh four missed calls from work oh bad luck yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's just, it is. Yeah.
0: yeah. So getting out, swimming, playing with kids, getting out of the house.
1: I also got sucked into being a Girl Guide leader. Mm. So <laughs> I tell you, there's nothing that distracts you completely more than on a Monday night I'm at the Girl Guide meeting and, uh, yeah, there's a bunch of, like, you know, anything from five to 13, 14-year-old girls that are now demanding your attention. <laughs> that is completely distracting. Yes. Yeah, yeah,
0: I bet, mm. I bet. Yeah. So any thoughts of... Um, you know where to next so will research be the end job do you think or oh yeah great question um yeah I think so I
1: think I found I found my niche I've and there's still so much to do in this space that it's it's endless um really no I have to renovate my house that's that's next but yeah I think academia is calling me I'd like to do some more um, I actually don't have a masters I don't have a PhD but that is something that's calling me but not for any career aspirations just because I think I, I want to find the right project for me and really take that journey for me it would be a personal journey and the time's got to be right for me
2: yeah.
1: um, I have 13 year old twin daughters who are just going through high school right now so sometimes it's about balance and I'm like mm, I think it's it's all about them right now I've got to support them through their journey uh, and it's interesting because I've been talking to my daughters about um, career pathways and subjects they have to choose in school. Um, and one of them is actually picking up a lot of science-y kind of things. Um, and my kids have sometimes come into work with me on mm-hmm. school holidays and things. Just I think it's really good for kids to do that, to see what mum and dad do at work. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's that influence that I've had on them that's making them think a little bit more broadly about subject choices and and possibilities of what Mm -hmm. they want to do with their lives as well
0: so would you say to them that nursing would be a good job to go into we're often very sort of um oh no don't do what i've done but what what would you say to them if they suggested nursing as a career
1: uh yeah well first of all you'd probably turn around "Are you're crazy nuts (laughs) no um But I think that's almost the beauty of nursing, is that you can chop and change your direction in nursing. Um, Mm. God, there's so many different aspects of it that are open um, that... yeah no I wouldn't dismiss them if that's something that they wanted to explore I'd say yeah go for it but you're going to have to do the hard yards and there's shift work and there's night duty so just let's put that in perspective
0: I think you could provide a very realistic um, perspective of the job yeah 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 Yeah. interesting Mm -hmm. (laughs) well I think we've probably almost covered most things is there anything else that you wanted to highlight to our listeners not necessarily
1: highlight but just to thank people for um you know just supporting us in what we do um i don't know research um yeah just ask more questions get uh, get more involved get more engaged talk to your research coordinators um yeah ask them more questions um because i find that our body of knowledge is now becoming so unique and so specialized um that we are extremely good resources for so many different things. And I think people need to know how to tap into us to be really supportive. Um, but, yeah, I'm enormously thankful and grateful to, to patients for consenting for studies, for their families for supporting us, um, and to our clinician um, colleagues. It's, it's great.
0: Mm. Very nicely said, um, and thank you for your time today. Thank you, Rachel. I guess we should rejoin the meeting and have a listen to some more study proposals. Absolutely. <laughs> and we'll catch up again soon, so thank you, Sam. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that. and I had a great time chatting with Sam and getting to know her better and hearing her thoughtful take on research. Remarkable to think that by participating in and undertaking research, we're not only caring for those in front of us, but also leading care into the future and caring for hundreds of thousands of patients. Thanks for listening. If you have any feedback or suggestions, I'd love to hear them. What did you enjoy? What didn't you enjoy? And who would you like to hear from? Or would you even like to make a guest appearance? Please contact me by email. Until next time, I hope this proves to be critical to your success.